welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. Over the last few years, there's been many changes in the hairdressing industry. One of those changes has been the continual evolvement of all things hair color. And inevitably, hand in hand with that, has been the rise of the hair colorist. I would never say that colorists were ever the poor cousins to stylists, but stylists were more likely to be the rock stars of hairdressing. However, these days, there's definitely a feeling that colorists have really come into a league of their own. One such person is my guest today, Mr. Jack Howard, who is definitely one of the very best colorists out there. Jack works out of the prestigious Paul Edmonds Salon in London's Knightsbridge, servicing a high-profile clientele as well as spending a lot of time as a freelance educator. He also produces a great podcast of his own titled The Everyday Hair Colorist that I recommend you check out. So amongst other things, in today's podcast, we will discuss what's been driving the changes in the hair color market, competing against the home color market, pricing of salon services, the importance of professional consultations, and lots more. So without further ado, let's jump straight in and talk to our guest today. Welcome to the show, Mr. Jack Howard. Thank you very much. That was a very nice intro. Thank you. Well, it's my absolute pleasure, Jack. It's been great. I've been really enjoying listening to your podcast, so it's great to uh, have you on the other side of the microphone so that I can uh, uh, dig in a little bit more to what you talk about and your expertise for uh, my audience. So um, let's start with an overview of your background. For anyone who, who isn't familiar with who Jack Howard is, give us your, you know, your two-minute, two-to-five-minute, whatever-it-takes uh, backstory of who you are, what you do. Well, my name's Jack Howard. Uh, I've been in the industry full-time now, I think 38 years. I uh, Full-time, I started as a Saturday boy in Lincolnshire, and um, that's sort of somewhere in the depths of the English countryside. And then I qualified. I came to London in the early, late 80s, 90s, and sort of really didn't have a focus on my career at all. I just it supported more my sort of going out, really, I think, to be honest with you. And then I sort of got wanderlust, which a lot of English people do. I think it's living on a small island and just they want to travel and things. And I ended up in a, with a job in Washington, D.C. And that's when I think my career truly started, because that's when I realized the potential of being a commercial colorist. And then I've been in London for 10 years now. I have a global role as a global ambassador for Blonde Me with Schwarzkopf Professional. I have my own product company, products launching this year. I have aligned myself with a collaboration with Paul Edmonds, which is a fantastic thing. And um, I'm busy, busy loving my job still. Great. Fantastic. That, that sounds interesting. Your own products. Are you talking your own hair color or are we talking hair color tools or would you rather not say at the moment? No, I can I can say the sort of the preliminary stuff around it. It's I was so frustrated as a colorist with the quality of tint brushes, right? Um, that seemed to be an add-on from manufacturers, and they're all the same molding, nothing spectacular at all. And it just frustrates me to the point where I thought I'm going to make one. I'm going to make something that I enjoy because I was always cutting up hair tools and changing them and pulling out you know, bristles and things like that. And I, I put together, I drew it, I figured out what I liked, what I didn't like. Then I got a designer to draw it. And then I made a 3D printing of it. And I took it to Denman, which are a huge product company, um, it, British in, or Irish, English, UK, a UK product company. And they liked it. And then we have been working on it for two years um, because I was really very clear about what I needed from a tint brush and right. we launched it this year. Great. Fantastic. Well, yeah. I, I, I hope that's a great success. I'm sure, uh, I'm sure it will be all the very best with it. So um, 
you, uh, you know, I was doing a little bit of research about you to make sure I was up to speed before we, you know, got on the on the call here. And right. you built a lot of your reputation uh, after a number of years in the US. You, you returned mm-hmm. to the UK. And um, I see that you're often referred to now as the King of Balayage, which is, you know, quite a, quite a, a title. Um, and you're, you're often acknowledged as someone who's responsible for balayage in the UK. Now, yes, I'm, that's very flattering. I'm, well, it's, it's, uh, you, you've certainly, you know, made that your, uh, your calling card, so to speak. But, mm. you know, I'm always led to believe that balayage, you know, I'm, I'm a similar uh, vintage to you, um, that, that balayage sort of was something that started in France in the 70s, and it never really, you know, took off in the UK. I mean, the British were always very much into foils. You know, so, so why... Why didn't balayage take off in the 70s or 80s? Why did we become, you know, addicted to foil? And, and then another sort of way of sort of rifting off that question is, is why did we get into it now? Um, gosh, that's a huge question, isn't it, really? There's so many different factors in it. So, of course, the Carita sisters are credited with with launching balayage in 1974. And, of course, it's Jack Dessange, those iconic, 80s images that are still iconic now. I mean, they're fantastic. Uh, in the UK, the market was very different, and there was a, a lot of, I believe, sort of in the 70s and 80s about the precision haircut and precision coloring that went with it, and there wasn't a lot of freedom in it. It was a, it was a, like a mathematical equation. But meanwhile, in the states. Uh, Hairdressers were have always looked at celebrity and models and things like that for their their go to on colours and hairstyles. And it just so happened that in the early nineties there was a, a balayage revolution that started with L'Oreal Professional and Nancy Braun and myself who were teaching that we were the only product company doing that at the time. And it really spoke to hairdressers behind the chair. And it just produced this really lovely, kind of soft, Victoria's Secret type hair at that stage of the game. By the time I came back to the UK in 2010, a number of things had happened in the UK. There'd been obviously an economic crisis. And the days of people coming in every six weeks for a full head of foils and uh, had gone. People weren't spending that kind of money, didn't want to. And there was also, a, I believe, a revolution at that time with social media had started happening. Instagram had started. And I think that young women didn't want to look like their mothers. And it was a sort of this sort of rejection of they didn't want to go to the mother's hairdresser who maybe had been in the business 20 years. They wanted something different. They were looking elsewhere for inspiration. And personally, I think, that at that time in the UK, a lot of people took their eye off the ball and just thought, oh, this is a fad, and they carried on foiling, and people were leaving them in droves because they were looking for something else, young women. Okay. I mean, I, with, with, um, with great authority, uh, but, but not uh, based on anything except a gut feeling, and I'm being <laughs> very tongue-in-cheek about this, uh, I've always talked about... Um, the thing, and you just you did just touch on it, so I don't feel that I've completely got it wrong. Um, I've always talked about the resurgence of balayage happened or came about because of the economic collapse. That 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 pre two thousand and nine, um, you know, people were pretty cashed up, and you know they thought nothing of a full head of foils and spending a lot of money on that. Uh, fast mm. forward two thousand and nine, economy collapses. Um, you know, people's discretionary income tightens up. And so the salon industry responds by, okay, how can we still do color, but how can we make them quicker services uh, that use less product and so therefore, um, you know, charge less for them. So, so that was, you know, when the, the, the balayage thing, that's what drove this major resurgence. Now, I'm not pretending for one minute that um, uh, using less product and taking less time has continued but the initial sort of beginning of balayage, I've always talked about it in that context 
have I got it wrong or have I got it sort of part right? Because you're sort of alluding to it was actually the beginning of the 2000s where you were saying that you were working on it with somebody else and, you know, it wasn't fueled by economic, you know, desires to come up with quicker uh, processes. What, what are your thoughts about that? I don't think, and this could be contentious, I don't think it was uh, a trend that evolved into a regular day, everyday salon service that was pushed to the forefront by salons. I think salons had to react on, on, the, on the trot, really. I think that if you look at Bleach London, the, that dip dye was the conversation piece in all the beauty press mm. at that period. And it was like, it's okay to have roots, massive roots. Yeah. And I also think that tie that into the fact that younger women wanted to be more fashionable and a, a sea of perfectly placed foils didn't really speak to them at yeah. that time. And then add in the economic piece. Um, but I don't think that hairdressers were pushing it or the, the names in the industry were pushing it. I think they were pushing back at it. Yeah. And it was a great opportunity for me to come in and say, I had a hashtag that's set on Twitter that said foils are dead, yeah. um, long live, you know, sort of balayage kind of thing. And it was a great place for me to slide in to the English market and just get on with it. Yeah, yeah, and get on with it, you did. Um, mm. You know, you, you talked about how the Carita sisters in Paris, uh, you know, are, are credited with, you know, starting balayage. Yes. Um, and, you know, the world became foil obsessed, you know, 80s, 90s, you know, mm. et cetera. Um, did the French just carry on doing balayage right through that? Yeah, because I don't know a French person that works in France that does foil. Foils yeah, are very, I, I, I agree. It's an English thing, um, and even the English use the smallest width foil in the world, whereas everyone else uses wider foils. I mean, they make their life even harder sometimes, yeah. these tiny little foils. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, yeah, the French don't do it. They don't like it. Yeah. Um, they don't like the look of it. Yeah, or maybe they maybe they've got something right. <laughs> um, mm. I mean, they get a, they get a lot right, but yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a beautiful, more natural feeling to hair color. What, what well, it's you... it's changed though, you know, because of course in nineteen the nineteen nineties when it was like Victoria's Secret hair, it was a very soft, delicate paint. Now you look at the industry as it is now, and I mean, I'm doing these massive, heavy paints that are still super soft when they're finished, but it's very different to how it was. So, like everything you know, things evolve and people play around with them and people adapt them and people that can't necessarily paint find a way to get a painted effect with a foil. Yeah. So it becomes a look, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. You, 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 how long were you in the US for? So I was there for like 17 years. Okay. So, so I, I mean, I did all foil to begin with. I mean, I did very English foil to begin with. It was just, you know, never going to work in a very busy environment and i learned how to use uh, and do an american wrap and you know less sections but plenty of hair colored and yeah um you know you learn if you want to stay fresh and relevant you learn yeah what, what do you think the uh, u.s market does the u.s hairdresser does from a color perspective um what do they do better than elsewhere because the color business over there is very strong what, what, what would you mm. sort of focus in on is it the you know, is it the marketing? Is it the pricing? Is it the speed of the services? What, what are some of the things that you think that, that, you know, we can learn from them? I think American hairdressers are just really good at communicating. Okay. And so they, and they see it as uh, an opportunity to upsell and there is a reason why they're upselling. I think they're incredibly good at that. And I found that after being there for so long, when I came back to the UK, I was able to speak to beauty press in a language that most technicians in the UK couldn't speak. They got too technical. Mm -hmm. And so you sort of, you know, even things like glossing and glazing, you know, that, that give your hair some shine, all, all those little ways. Of, and the Americans are so good at it. Okay. So, so good at it. And I think American women in are willing to go above and beyond to get the result that they want. Uh, whereas sometimes the English market, there's, a little bit of hesitancy and you know i don't they don't necessarily want to do all that so i think it's a different market yeah definitely okay mm. all right um you don't have your own salon you you work out of a I, I alluded to it earlier before uh you know very prestigious london salon paul edmonds in knightsbridge um yes. 
Why don't you have your own salon? Have you ever thought of having your own salon? You know, there are those moments of craziness when I think, oh, I'd quite like to have a salon. And then I realise that I wouldn't. I think that certainly I wouldn't want a salon in England because I think it's really hard to find motivated, disciplined staff. And I, I like a solution to a problem. I don't want a reason why we can't do something. That's I'm solution-driven, very much like my American friends. And I just feel like I can be so independent doing this collaboration at Paul's. Um, they have a great styling voice. He has a huge heritage of film and TV work. And I can go in and I can be at my color voice for them and they can be a styling voice for me. And it just works really, really well for me. Yeah. And it also allows me to do all the other things that I want to do. Yeah. Okay. So you aren't an employee. You're like an independent contractor. Yeah. So independent contractor. I mean, I have my own company, Jack yeah. Howard. Um, and because I'm not just in there, and I've got other revenue streams going, it works. It just works really well. Yeah. Um, I like the fact that you know I turn up to work, and if I don't work, I don't get paid. I like the fact that that, that drives me. I'm yeah. motivated by money, um, obviously. But a lot of people aren't. They sort of just see it as a job, whereas I see it as a career. Yeah. Okay. So. You know, uh, whether you're talking the United States or the UK, Europe, Australia, whatever, there is a real push in that area of, yes. of people working freelance, people working as independent contractors. Uh, what's, what's driving it? And can you talk a little bit about how it works for you from a, from a financial perspective? If I'm some, you know, a young hairdresser, you know, listening to this and I'm thinking, well, I don't want to open my own salon, but I, I don't just want to carry on being an employee. I want to have other strings to my bow. You know, what, uh, what does that look like, you know, financially? Well, I don't think it's for everyone. Um, but I think that the drive has been that people, uh, the pay can be incredibly poor in hairdressing for people. And it seems like salons take huge amounts of money out of the salons, but don't pay it to the stuff. But I mean, there are many reasons for that. There are, you know, there's in the UK, you've got your social security, your national insurance, your, um, your taxes, uh, pension, you've got all those things going, plus the rates, the business rates are huge on salons. Mm. And so they can probably, they can't give as much as somebody thinks they are worth. Um, if you've got a clientele, and you want some freedom and you want to make more money, it probably is the way to go because then you set up your own business and then you pay your own taxes. But you need to be disciplined in that, I think. And um, I certainly, the reason that I did it when I came back to the UK was because I couldn't get a job anywhere. Uh, nobody was interested in me. And if oh. they were, they wanted me to foil. Yeah, And I didn't want to do that. And I decided that I was just, I had money in the bank anyway, um, which is always a help. And I decided to have a go at it and do it my own way. But the hours were long. You know, you get to work. You, When I first started, I could have a nine o'clock and I could have an eight o'clock in the evening. And that would be it. I mean, my first paycheck was horrendous. I remember it really clearly. Mm. But you know, I found I found my voice, and I was, had some great opportunities, and I took every opportunity I could. Yeah. So, someone in in your sort of situation, would they typically pay in the UK? Would they typically be paying a percentage of their total sales to the salon, or would they be paying a fixed dollar amount? So, uh, I have a uh, Paul Edmonds. I have a service fee that I have to pay, and that is to pay for the beautiful environment that I'm in. Yeah, and, and it is it, a beautiful it, environment. It is beautiful. It's really high end, and it, the the attention to detail is perfect, and it just fits my market really well. And it pays for assistance and all those things. And then there is after that's done, then there's a percentage I get every month on all my takings, and my then there's retail for me as well on that. And then I obviously pay my own VAT, um, which is a sales tax for an American audience. I pay yeah. that as well which yeah. I don't think the American market has a sales tax on hair, but we do in the UK. It's 20%. Yes, of course. Okay. Mm. Um, so, so what do you think about these sort of changing business models? I mean, obviously that works for you. 
Um, yeah. And obviously you're aware in the, in the US in particular, and it is starting to happen in Europe and, and the Asian markets, Australia, et cetera, where you're starting to get more salon suites. So this sort yes. of business unit of one. What are your thoughts about that? How does that, how does that fit in with you know, your, <clears throat> your thinking? So salon suites um, in the USA, I imagine them to, that they could be quite lonely places if it's just you in a room. And I actually like working in a salon because I like the buzz and I like the people and I get to communicate with more people and bounce ideas off as a colorist. It's lovely to be in a dispensary and saying, what do you think of that? Should I do this? I'm going to do this, that kind of thing. I love that aspect of mm. our industry. And I wouldn't want to feel alienated by just being on my own in a suite. But one of the things that's happening in London and seeing to a varying degree happening around the country is these lovely, there's one called the Hunter Collective, oh, yeah. where it's a spectacular space mm. and people are renting the chair by the hour or by the day. And so for lots of people who are doing session or who are doing education like me, they can go do a few days there and do their clients and then go off and do their other things too. And that seems to work really well. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I'm often asked, is the salon suite happening in the UK? And mm. my answer is, is that, you know, because of the the real estate situation in Europe in general, that, that yeah. what would work in America because of the size of the place and the real estate yes. and the way people, you know, commute, et cetera, is not going to transpose directly to this market. But you're seeing um, a lot more independent contractors. I, I saw a figure recently, 54% of, of hairdressers are now self-employed in the UK, according to mm. the National Hairdressing Federation. So, so there's, it, it, it's still happening. It's just happening in a different way. And uh, I, I know what you mean, the Hunter Collective. I'm familiar with it. I'll, I'll actually put their website address in the show notes for anyone who's interested in seeing what that's about. Because that sort of model is actually a really good fit for what you do, isn't it? You know, so you've yes. got many different roles. You want to be yeah. able to dip in and out and use the space when and as you need it. So yeah. it, it definitely can work for some people. And it is, you know, part of the world that, that we live in, whether, whether some salon owners like it or not. And obviously some people don't like those changes. Um, wh wh what Lots about of people don't like change though, do they? I mean, people yeah. are resistant to change in all sorts of industries and they're the, magical moments where people can do really well by actually going with change. Yeah. And embracing it and, and looking yeah. at how to make it work. Exactly. Yeah. So um, in line with that, uh, one of the things I'm starting to see more of is specialist color salons. So color only. Have you ever worked in one? And, and, and what are your thoughts about that type of business? So for me, uh, for many, many years, I've specialized in just color. I mean, I trained in everything. Yeah. Um, but you, you wouldn't want to blow dry from me. Pretty disastrous these days. But I've always worked in salons that have color departments. Uh -huh. And so the colorists were always seen as specialists. But I liked what you said at the beginning of the, the start of this about how uh, stylists were superstars. Mm -hmm. But it was the colorists that always made the money because the bills are always bigger. Mm -hmm. um, and there's been, I, I suppose a lot of it has to do with Instagram, really. Uh, Commercial hair color is, is so celebrated. I mean, I think the last decade has been a celebration of the commercial hair colorist. Um, and people are specializing within the speciality of color. You're getting balayage experts. You're getting vivid experts. You're getting blonde experts. You're getting redhead experts. It's fascinating how you can get a USP out of something that's already a USP. Yeah, ex exactly. I, I know mm. there's a salon in, uh, I believe it's in Melbourne in Australia, uh, and they're the blonde specialists. That's what they yeah. do. They don't cut yeah. hair. They colour hair. And not only do they only colour, apparently they only do blondes. So, yeah. which is quite an interesting niche to occupy. Um, and we'll, I'll, I'll come to that uh, shortly. Are you, are you familiar with, uh, I'm sure you are, with Skylar London? Yes. Yeah. So yes. I did a... Yes. I did a podcast uh, earlier, um, mm. six months ago, probably with Skylar London. Um, uh, and again, I'll put a link in the show notes for people that are listening to this one. You know, she's got this, this beautiful, you know, specialist um, color only salon. Uh, but one of the things that I really like about what she does is the memberships that she has, the salon, you know, membership model. Uh, mm. what, what are your thoughts about that? Well, what is, what is a membership? Is it well, Okay, so it's where you're paying X amount per month 
So you might yeah. be on a, a hundred pound or a hundred dollar membership a month, a hundred and fifty mm. or or a two hundred, and uh, depending on the level of membership. Uh, determines what you can have. So if you're on the top level of membership at Sky to London, for example, you can have whatever you want as often as you want. You can literally go in there every day and get your hair washed and blow dried and a treatment put on it and a toner put on it. But you might be paying four or five hundred dollars or pounds a month for the privilege mm. of that. Whereas, uh, yeah, whereas her best selling uh, membership is the, I think she said it was the entry level one. And from memory, that was say 85 pound a month. So for our US listeners, uh, what's that going to be? 100 and, uh, 120 or something, $120 yeah, a month. And, yeah. and, that, and that entitles them to, you know, two blow dries a month, you know, uh, a, 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 a glaze. I, I don't know, I'm making this up now, but it entitles right. them to less services, but you're paying it just like a gym membership. You're paying it as a direct debit once a month, but you're a member of that salon. So every time you go in there, you don't have to have your hand in your purse again. That's interesting, isn't it? I don't know whether that is something that I would want to do, but I think that one of the, one of the, that's, it's innovation, isn't it? It's trying things out yeah. and doing things differently and, I, I don't see anything wrong with that at all. It, it's not something I just wouldn't want to do that particularly. I think that I just want, when somebody comes in, I want them to pay for that service there and then. And, sure. and that's it. That, okay. that works very nicely for me. But also, I'm not in the salon all the time. So if I wasn't in the salon and somebody wanted that, it wouldn't work for me. Mm -hmm. um, but I know people do it with manicures, don't they? They'll buy six mani five manicures, get the sixth one yeah, free. Exactly. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, so why would, why would it not work for blow dries and hair color and all those things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, now, I know one of the things that you are known for is social media. Mm. Um, wh what is your your weapon of choice? Facebook, Instagram? I mean, I, I know the answer. I think everyone knows the answer before <laughs> you even say it. <laughs> it's, fu it's funny, isn't it? I, um, I was talking to myself about my Instagram account this morning while I was walking the dog. Mm. And I was like, right, I've got to do this and I've got to do that. And that it is... It is my go-to platform. It, uh, I've worked really, really hard on it in the last year. Yeah. Um, I've got those numbers up more. And I've sort of figured out, I found my path, as somebody said, and I keep to that for, for Instagram. Um, Facebook is interesting because I think that Facebook works for a lot of UK salons because it's much more regional and people, uh, old people are on that. Um, and I do post on Facebook, obviously, because whatever goes on my Instagram account goes on my Facebook business. But I don't really pay Facebook a lot of attention, but I know people that it works really well for them. Yeah. Um, Insta is my thing at the moment. Um, I find it really, really interesting and I really enjoy it as well, but it is a job in itself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I know lots of people sort of struggle with it, but. It, you don't need loads of followers to have a successful Instagram account. And I think that's where people go wrong. They all think they've got to have these big numbers. Mm. What you need to be doing is engaging with people in your, in your market. Mm. Um, so if you've got a thousand clients and you're communicating to all of them on Instagram, then that's great. And if you're engaged with them, that's great. But for me, I wanted to, as my, I had an international role at the time when I really started focusing on on my, my account, not a global role. And I've been in a room with some heavy hitters on Instagram. And I was amazed because I was, I was went in and I was like, oh God, what's this going to be like? I was so nervous. And they were totally normal. They did it all themselves. And, but they did one thing differently to me. And that was that they repeated, 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 and they did it every day on their Instagram account. And once I got my head around that, that's when I started to see my my growth my really good growth so when and you say I, repeated you just mean they were consistent they were every cons day consistent right. and the message didn't change yeah you know so for me what am i known for i'm known for balayage um i'm not known for blow dries as i told you i'm not very good at them i found that showing process pictures of the application elevated the uh idea of what balayage was because it's very visual to look at and it also showcased it as an educator so i started focusing more on education and it also brought people in because they perceived me as an expert so it did two things it put bums on seats and it also got me classes booked so it's been very successful for me mm. 
Okay. So most of your new clients that you get are coming directly through social media or through Yeah, all, all the new existing. clients come through social. I you know, I I've done some really good UK press and you know, I've been spokes UK's colour spokesperson for a brand at one point and uh, for consumer, but all my clients come through um Instagram. It's very nice to be in Vogue. It's lovely to be in Marie Claire. It's it's lovely be in the evening standard, maybe because it's read by so many people, um, ES magazine, all of those. But that doesn't necessarily bring me clients to my chair. My price point is quite high, so it's quite niche for people that come. But mm. Instagram pulls everybody in. Mm. Mm. Okay. Um, you wh- seem surprised by that. No, 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 not at all. I, I, I uh, <laughs> not, not at all. I. I, when I've listened to you talk about your social media before, your Instagram before, on your own podcast, I know you have a little bit of a love-hate relationship with it. Mm. Um, that, like everybody, I mean, I do too. I mean, yeah, and it's it's often more hate than love. Uh, but I also recognise the power of it and the importance of it, and it's where our market is. And uh, I mean, you know, you and I are hairdressers, so our market is on that. If you and I were dentists, we wouldn't be on Instagram. We, we would probably have very little interest in it. Um, well, and but, there's only so many bad teeth you can show, isn't there? Yeah, um, that's true. Um, so I think that it's, it's a visual tool to your uh, well, window to who you are uh, yeah. as a hairdresser. And I, you know, I do have a love-hate relationship with it. At the moment, I'm loving it. Mm. And that's partly because I've just, this Sunday, I spent a whole day shooting content. Mm. Um, for it so i've sort of got that out of the way and i feel like i've got enough going on for sort of seven weeks now so i can kind of calm down a little bit right but yeah it's it's a fantastic tool it's worked really well for me but it's about being consistent with my message and my conversation and yeah yeah i like it a lot at the moment so mm. not so much hate but i know lots of people struggle with it um like we all struggle with everything and that part of my podcast is really talking to people about what they do, what they don't do, what they like, what they don't like. And um, with with my account, I don't put anything really personal on it. I keep it very professional. Yeah. Um, my stories allow you to see a little bit about who I am. So you can see me having a bit of fun. You can see me cooking or, you know, but I'm also polling people, asking people what they want to see on my page. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, it's a full-time job. Yeah, yeah. Well, that becomes the point of the next question. How much time do you allocate for so it's it? It's not necessarily an everyday thing. I think that, as I just said to you, that I do allocate days where I start doing content, mm-hmm. and then I I don't post every day. My best days to post are Monday through Friday, specifically Tuesday to Friday, and my best time to post is between three p.m. and nine p.m. at night. Uh, and 81% of my audience is women. So I've got that figured out. And then generally speaking, I have these hacks that I make, uh, which show people how I do things, which works really well. And I do those for a Monday. And then I might have a pitch that I really love and I want to pop a bit forward, but I sort of have a plan of where I'm going per week. Right. But it's ad hoc how I post. Yeah, yeah. So Jack, yeah. when you're, you, you alluded to um you were doing content yesterday uh, uh so um, um are you saying that you don't do social of clients you bring in models specifically and uh, and spend a day or so developing content on those models so you can do everything your way within your time frame as opposed to you do a client and at the end of that service you allow 5 minutes to you know uh, to photograph their hair or whatever so uh, this is this is really interesting because uh, of course I don't think that there are many of my clients that necessarily want to be on the mm. gram yeah. and they're not necessarily coming in um, fully made up and all of that. And I find it hard to get a picture in the right light in a London salon that's incredibly busy. Yeah. It's hard. Um, so I, what I do is I, I have a fantastic access to some beautiful women mm. um, who are either influencers or models who like my work who are willing to trade with me so i'll do their color they'll do some poses for me or they'll do some content for me that kind of thing um and so on a content day what i do is i collab with different stylists 
which is really good fun. Um, and we go for some great looks that we're looking at, at the moment. And, I, I, you know, sometimes it's I've done some lovely stuff with Zoe Irwin and it was really airy and very Zoe. And then I've just some, just finished ones. I've just done a really polished and, and quite tight, which I'm enjoying as well. And then I'll film every stage of it and I'll pre-plan things that I want to focus on. Like if I want to focus on the money piece, if I want to focus on a certain gesture of, of the application, do all of that and get that out of the way. And then within a salon environment, I dedicate a Friday um, to press and to influencers and to models. And they can come in on a Friday at a different location. Of course, he's got two salons. He's got one in Battersea Power Station, which is absolutely sublime. And I'll do them there. And then I, I can shoot them and get them to do selfies and things like that. So I've found a, a way that works really well for me. Yeah. Yeah. I often get asked that as a question that, um, you know, my client base, it's not appropriate. And I totally get that. And I can imagine mm. with your client base in, in Knightsbridge with a, a very high ticket price um, yeah. and the age group of them, uh, the last thing a lot of them want to do is, you know, sit there under the ring light and have their photograph taken. It's not who they are. But I no, get I don't how, think Paul wouldn't like it either. I think they yeah. just wouldn't want, they don't want that kind of thing in the salon. Yeah. And I think, I think it's a little bit intrusive for our market. Yeah. But I do know people that do it really, really well. Yeah. Um, so it just depends on your audience, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. You've got to make it work mm. for, for who you are. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, the, the, the other thing I'm wondering about is, you know, I've come up through an age of uh, hairdressing awards are uh, uh, important. Competitions and awards have had a big importance. And I'm starting to wonder now whether the validity of awards is as significant today as what it was five or 10 years ago. And is that because of social media? You know, that, that you don't need the acknowledgement of some judges that, the, you know, the, the, you, you've got an audience of 20,000 people or whatever that are, here's my award, I don't need that. Do you think that is happening as a groundswell movement in the industry? I think it depends on which award it is. Right. Um, I think that if you look at it, if you look at something like Behind the Chair, yeah. which is uh, their awards are massive and there's some really great recognition in it, um, then yeah, maybe go for it. I just think it depends on the award and the type of hairdresser you want to be. So I don't think all the awards speak to all hairdressers and mm. they're not supposed to. But what I have noticed in the last few years is there have been some really fantastic commercial categories in there. I mean, you know, uh, British Hairdressing Awards, their business awards, I got their social media award this year. It's the first time they've added that category. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really good, as a great acknowledgement of how times are changing. Um, so it just depends. I think that people still love, there are certain people in the industry who are industry hairdressers and we go to events and we enjoy it. And those, those people like the awards and there are other ones that people think, oh, I wouldn't enter that, but they might enter Color World UK's, some of their awards because they're more speaking to hairdressers that work behind the chair. So it just depends, I suppose. Yeah. I yeah. mean, who doesn't like an award? Who doesn't like getting an award? Well, head, hairdressers like, love a party, don't they? Yeah, I mean, they absolutely love a party. They love those events from a party point of view. Mm. Um, do they like the award? Yeah. I mean, I, I think some people, I know plenty of hairdressers who would never enter yes. an award because it's just yeah. not their thing. It's just not what they do. No, um, and there's nothing wrong with that. No, exactly. At all. Yeah. But, but they think, might quite like still, though, having 20,000 followers. They're more interested in having 20,000 yeah. followers or whatever the number is, you know, than an award. You know, I suppose a lot of it depends whether you're focused on the industry or whether you're focused on the consumer as well. I think those Absolutely. people that are, are very industry-driven and do education, et cetera, they're very much more award-driven than those individuals or salons that are more consumer-focused. Yes, and um, but you know there are plenty of consumer categories for salons, and you see salons you see salons going after those, and I think that's amazing. You know they might get a British Beauty Award or or something like that, or the Marie Claire Awards are fantastic for yeah. consumer recognition. Yeah. Um, whereas maybe something like the British Hairdressing Awards, those images are more hairdressy and they speak to hairdressers, but there is still a lot of kudos to yeah. winning them. So what I what I love the most about this industry is that there are so many different areas where you can go and you can 
be the best version of yourself within it. Yeah. Um, and it might not be somebody else's thing, but that's okay. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so social media, I mean, uh, I, I want to still talk about technology, but go off at a, mm. another, at another tangent um, and talk about technology in terms of uh, tools, gadgets, products. Um, how much difference uh, from a colorist point of view uh, has, um, has, have the Plex type products made to the world of the hair color? Well, it was, it was a game changer in many ways, that the Plex conversation. Um, and I think that the thing that scared me about it initially in the UK was, of course, when you get aligned with a product company and you start seeing their rules and regulations for you know, using products, you can't mix other things in. So there's a liability, an insurance liability issue. And that actually got changed in the UK, which was cool because up until that point, it was a little bit scary. But I think Plex is, everybody knows the name Olaplex. Clients, I mean, I use Olaplex at home. I mean, it was, it's a once in a decade product, no? Mm, exactly. And then everyone, yeah. everyone jumped on it. I think that if the hair is super damaged, whether you put a Plex in it or not, I wouldn't be coloring it. Yeah. So beautiful hair color, as far as I'm concerned, starts off with beautifully conditioned hair. And the plexes certainly help maintain that. They certainly give longevity to color. You get less fade on your reds. You get less fade on your brunettes, which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, but if the hair is in a really bad shape, then for me, it's a no-go. And I sometimes worry that people think, oh, it's got a plex and I'm fine, just slap it on. Yeah. And that's, I don't think that's the case. But it was a, a fantastic groundbreaking technology it was amazing it was amazing yeah, to watch that, that. Yeah, yeah yeah if if we'd gone back in time for you know to before the plex products came out before mm. olaplex came out and i'd asked you that question you know like what 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 new technologies do we need or whatever to make the life of color better you, you may very well have answered it by describing what olaplex does do you know what i mean yeah. something or any of the plex products yeah you know something that would allow you to do stuff to hair that currently is just not possible so the question i'm asking you now is asking you that question now meaning what else do we need what is the new technology what are the breakthroughs what are the what are the things that in 10 years time will we be going isn't it amazing that we can do this is it is it that we'll be doing the same things but a lot quicker or or, or, or what I think, um, so for me, so as Troy put, uh, they put a Plex in a pre-lightener, which I thought was amazing. And so it's got that in there. And I think that it would be great to see more of that going on so that there's more care in products. But I personally believe the conversation in the next 10 years isn't necessarily about working faster. Um, it's only so fast you can work. Um, but I think sustainability um, yeah. and em environment is, the, is obviously the huge conversation everywhere else. And it's the sort of the elephant in the room in the hairdressing industry um, because it's a difficult one for us um, to, re to recycle things um, depending on the country you're in. Um, but I think that's the conversation and that's going to be the point of difference. Yeah, really interesting. I, I want to come back to that in a minute. Yeah. Um, I just want to finish up with the technology side of stuff. I want to ask you this question about, I interviewed a, a, a lady recently who has a, a a product called Salon Scale uh, comes out of Canada, and it's a it's a, a measuring um, app uh, to uh, monitor and price color services properly. It's on again. I did a podcast with her six weeks ago, or whatever. I'll I'll put a link in the show notes for it. Mm. Um, do you use anything like that? Any sort of uh, color apps? There's another one uh, called Vish. Uh, which is similar, but different. Again, both, uh, well, that's American, whereas Salon Scale is Canadian. Uh, what are your thoughts about those sort of tools and technology? Do you use them? Do you see a need for them? I think um, any technology that helps a hairdresser be successful is good technology. I think one of the problems that we face in the UK is that the average salon price is actually too low and people can't afford to run their businesses for long. I mean, if you look at a tube of color and a bottle of developer, and maybe that comes to, you know, 20 pounds and somebody's doing a root tint for 30 pounds and they haven't taken in the business rate, they haven't taken in how much the chair needs to earn, 
um, every hour and how much it is for an assistant and blah, 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 all those things. And they're doing 30 pound colors. And obviously that's not sustainable. Yeah. Um, so I think that most definitely and if any sort of technology that helps along that way is absolutely you've, you've got to have anything that makes our working life equipment that makes us stand better or cut better and all of those things brilliant yeah yeah definitely okay all right you you just touched on that sort of um uh sustainability you know health hair color that sort of mm. area you know whether it's global health personal health whatever um yeah. One of the things I often find is that some countries are, and the UK is one of them, um, we have a very stringent approach to doing patch tests, for example. Yeah. Whereas other countries are very loose about that. You mm. know? And, you know, if I, if I explain to my American audiences that uh, you literally can't walk into a salon in the UK and say, can I get my colour done? Because they won't do it for you without a patch test and you'll have to book mm. 24 hours later. Um, how did you find that when you came back here? Did you find that a big challenge? What are your, what are your thoughts around that? Well, you know, allergy alert tests are so important. And I, I, I sort of got fed up with hearing, oh, I've, I've already had colour for 30 years. I'm not allergic to this, that, and the other. So I actually took allergy alert test or patch test out of the conversation. Um, so all new clients have to have a consultation with me and they have to come in. It can't be over the phone. Maybe over Skype if it's an international client, but generally speaking, they need to come in, have a consultation, and then I do an allergy alert test while they're there. But it's never told to them until they're actually with me. Um, right. because that takes the pressure off me. I find it very hard. I think a lot of us in London really struggle with that because you see somebody walking through the door and you can't do anything. You can't yeah. do the colour. Yeah. Um, unless, of course, they're just having pre-lightened hair and no glazing. Then you can because you can't allergy alert test for pre-lightener. But if there's a glaze involved, then you're supposed to allergy alert test for that too. It's very difficult for businesses, I think. But I also think that more and more people are becoming allergic to things yeah. and you know would you see an allergic reaction to hair color it's pretty scary yeah what can happen and so as it, for me i like to frame it as a consumer safety issue rather than it's a pain in the ass sorry you've got to come in for it yeah but you but you told them they can't book their appointment that day they're booking they an can't. appointment for a consultation they're booking an appointment for a consultation yeah. they cannot they cannot book the consultation and book the appointment at the same time yeah. Because what I, I sort of goes off track a little bit for you in the conversation, but what I found was I had this resistance to algae alert tests, the word itself, and I also had people booking in for a consult and then not turning up yeah. because it was free. Yeah. Or somebody coming in, you know, and, and I don't want somebody booked in to my chair who's a colour correction and she thinks she's a set of highlights. So I like to minimise all the drama have somebody come in for a consult, they pay for that consultation, and that that will then be deducted off their final bill when I book the appointment with them and book it out for the time that I need. Yeah, okay. And do you get resistance about that, the paid consultation? Uh, I've No, what it does is everyone who pays obviously turns up, and those that say I'll call back in a minute never call back, and that's absolutely fine with me. Yeah, sure, sure. And, and what do you charge for a paid consultation? Is it a... So I charge £50. Right. For the consult and it is I've, I've refunded one person because i told them that we just weren't the fit at all i just mm. it wasn't a, a, the conversation was hard it wasn't happening and i'm like actually i i'm not the right colorist for you mm. and one lady who uh, said to me a few years back now she had extremely overprocessed hair and she wanted a balayage look and I told her that we needed to do treatments and haircuts and all of that stuff. And she felt that she could, somebody else could do it for her. And I said, well, here's your deposit back. Don't worry about it. You, yeah. you go and see someone. But, um, and then when they come in after the console, we talk about what's going to happen to them and what, how we're going to book it and plan, plan the idea. Um, and then I take her to the reception desk, I book it, and then I charge her a, a bo another booking deposit for the appointment for first timers so that it's, it's about 150 altogether yeah and that means that when they come in 150 pounds is already paid but yeah. if they cancelled in 24 hours i keep that 150 pounds 
Right. Okay. Good. Good. Yeah. I, th- I think that's great to do it. And I know a lot of hairdressers are frightened to do that. And I, I've heard you talk about that a lot. And uh, I'm, I'm with you all the way there. I think it's the way to be treated like a professional is to act like a professional. I am a professional, and I think that the industry is getting better at it. And yeah, I, I spoke to this woman, and her the amount of cancellations she had over the year was an awful lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you it's not like you can fill that spot. Even if you've got a cancellation list, if somebody calls 10 minutes before, it just doesn't turn up. How do yeah. you fill it? Yeah. And I'm so frustrated by that. And I think that the industry is frustrated by it, that it's like, oh, it's raining today. I'm not going to go to the hairdresser. I've got an appointment. It doesn't matter. Or, oh, I went out last night and I'm hungover. Or yeah. I've got something better to do. You wouldn't do that at a restaurant. Mm. Why would you do that at a hairdresser's? Yeah, exactly. You, you, you said before that allergies were on the increase. Mm. And I have read that as well, that the... Mm. Uh, the amount of people that suffer allergic reactions today to hair color is greater than what it was 10 or 20 years ago. Yes. Um, do you think, are you finding that clients are asking now for, do you have, you know, organic uh, product or product that's PPT free? Um, are people aware of that? Are they starting to request that? I think there's a certain category of clients who maybe are living a more vegan lifestyle or they might be more aware of it. I think it's still quite niche, but I think that people are much more aware of, um, aware of the environment and things that can happen to them. And so people are trying to do the best that they can do with what they want. You know, do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So I, think I think the manufacturers are doing that as well. You know, they, yeah. they, they want to get results. They still want to get performance. But, you know, if you make something completely organic and natural, then you're going to have to keep it in the fridge or it's going to go off, you know, once it's opened. And mm. do, do you know what I mean? There has to be a degree of chemistry in there um, for it to be commercially viable, to sit on a shelf, to be consistent, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Uh, yeah. But it is an issue. It is an issue, and I think the, the products have improved in quality so mm. much yeah, in yeah. the last 20 years, haven't they? I mean, it, it's all getting better. Yeah. The, the end game is healthy hair, beautiful hair color, and a healthy client. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's the ultimate goal. Mm. Um, when, when we're talking before, you, you said that you think the future changes that we'll be talking about in 10 years' time will be around sustainability. Um, so... You know, we're talking packaging, we're talking, you know, what we rinse down the sink or not, uh, recycling, you know, yeah. testing on animals, all that sort of stuff. What sort of things are you doing yourself, you know, in a salon today to to sort of go, do you know what I mean? I'm taking yes. this seriously. So I was in the Netherlands, I was in the Netherlands, I think it was, uh, end of last year. And there they have this fantastic recycling program for salons where it's bottle caps, tubes, boxes of, of tint, bottles. They recycled everything. There was a container for everything. Wow. And we're sort of, Paul Edmonds, we're researching how much of the stuff that we can. So obviously boxes recycle that and plastic and another thing. But it's like, how much more can we do to make us as green as or, you know, as carbon neutral as possible? And there's another woman, Corinne Jackson, who's having a fantastic conversation about that too. I mean, if you travel to the, you know, to Thailand or India or anything like that, and you see the pollution and the devastation on the beaches, it is absolutely horrific. And we all have to do our bit mm. um, professionally and privately. Yeah. Um, you know, my hope would be, why do we have these one litre bottles of developer we used to have buy it by the gallons. Mm. You never see that anymore, don't you? Why don't we have bigger bottles that are recyclable? Why don't we have, <clears throat> I don't know, a dispenser of colours rather than individual colours in a... Magically, it'd be nice if you could press a button and it would mix it for you straight away, wouldn't it? Yeah, the, I've, <clears throat> I've, seen, I've seen variations on a theme of that type of technology, but it never seems to survive. Yeah, it no. never seems to survive. You know, rather like the... Um, you know, the things you see in the hardware store when you're getting paint mixed, where it yes. is, it's one big thing that has the primary and secondary colors in it. And then according to whatever formula you put in, it delivers a bespoke 
you know, yeah. colour for that. So, yeah, maybe maybe th- th- that area is being revisited. Who knows? Um, Who knows? Y- we, are, we are seeing shampoos now where you can take your bottle in and get it refilled. Yes. Um, so, you know, it, it is going that way. It's just we need to go a bit quicker, I think. Yeah, I think so too. Every little helps. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned a minute ago, you said how, you know, products got so much better in the last 10, 20 years, uh, and it has uh, without doubt. Um, but it's also got a lot better in the home hairdressing colour market. I mean, the stuff yeah. that's in, you know, aisle seven of Boots or, or Walgreens or whatever um, as box colour is a better product today than it was 10 years ago. And it's inevitable because it's often owned by exactly the same people. Um, yes. What are your Let's let's have a conversation about the home colour market and just get your thoughts on that and how it impacts on the industry. I mean, you know, more people colour their hair at home than do in salons, etc. Yeah. So, um, you know, t- talk to us about that. So th- there's this percentage of women who only colour their hair at home, and a lot of that is to do with uh, value for money mm-hmm. and also what they see happening in a salon. If you put one bowl of tint out in front of a woman and put it on her head, one tin, one box, how difficult can that be? Mm-hmm. We, As salons, generally, we over-index in blondes. We do more blondes than we do brunettes. Mm-hmm. So you get more brunettes doing the hair at home. But the, you're not going to change the hair, home hair colour market. The piece that we as an industry, I feel, as colourists need to address are the clients that we call mixers. They're the ones that go to the salon, but they also top it up at home. And I think that a lot of that is about the fact that people just, and this sounds terrible, just slap a tint on, mm-hmm. you know, there's no tailoring about it. I'm not saying everyone, but I'm saying that's the perception and there isn't anything bespoke about that. And so if you, I mean, I'd always like to do a little bit lighter around the face. I pull a few pieces through, maybe add a glaze to it. It's not just a tint. Mm. Um, and I think that makes it special and it makes the woman see value in the price of it. But too often, I believe that, you know, if you've got the colour mixed up by the time Mrs. Jones comes through at 4.30 on a Saturday afternoon and you're like, oh, same as usual, you've got the tint out there, you put it on, there's no wonder that she goes down aisle seven at Boots or, you know, aisle seven at Walgreens or wherever wherever, and does it herself. So you're not going to always... You're not going to turn every box color client into a client, but there are those that go between the aisle seven and the salon that mix, and they're the ones you want to get in because it's quite a large proportion. Yeah. What What, what are your thoughts about, you know, when you and I started hairdressing, um, you know, you ha- the client had two choices, uh, professional in-salon color mm. uh, or box color, whether she bought it from, you know, uh, the supermarket or, or, or the, you know, the pharmacy, the drugstore, whatever, mm. they were her two choices. Now you have this other player in the middle. Um, I'm sure you're becoming aware of them. If, if I'm sure you are aware of them. Uh, brands like um, eSalon.com yes. um, and MadisonReed.com and, and yeah. L'Oreal owned one, ColorInco.com, where they sort of occupy this middle ground because it's, it's online uh, color sent straight to your door, like we get everything now online and sent straight to our door. Um, but it is, it's not a, it's a consultation with a professional online. Like you said before, mm. when you do consultations with international guests, now you do them over Skype or whatever. Yeah. So these are consultations that you do with a colorist over Skype or, or, or uh, FaceTime or whatever. Um, so someone can see you, they can see your hair, they can see your skin tone, your eye color, the, 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 the density of hair, they can get you to part it, they can get you to put your hair, et cetera, et cetera. And then they're prescribing a bespoke color formula to, to you. Um, I mean, I see them as having a huge impact on the salon industry. Uh, potentially and, and really, and doing the whole lot for, you know, 10 or $15, um, an application sent yeah. to the door. You can get the cotton wool, you get the gloves, you get the tint brush, you get the bowl, you get the, the stain remover, you get the, and the instructions and the personalized video, et cetera, et cetera. Um, talk to us about that from your perspective. Well, I think that there are always, you know, there are always going to, there's always going to be competition for the hair color market and in different forms. 
And this one might take away from the box colors that you buy in the chemist. It might, people might be more edged towards buying that because it was a little bit more personalized in it. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can please everybody. Um, but again, I think that the different types of people, um, people come to a salon for an experience. You don't necessarily get a great experience with an online consultation and then putting it on yourself in your kitchen or your bathroom, do you? It's not mm-hmm. the same thing. So I think it's important for us as an industry to make sure that we're always upping our game in the way in which we communicate, the way we deliver services, the way in which we um, look after a client's experience from point of entry, which means from the moment she walks through that door to the reception desk, to the chair with me, to the shampoo, back to the stylist. That whole experience has to be fantastic to keep people coming to the salon. Yeah. But there are always going to be people that do at home and this online stuff. And they've got some big names behind some of those brands as well. Um, I think that's more prob- likely to bite into the box color market than it is into our market. Okay. Well, that's an interesting take on it. I mean, I totally agree with your your response that, you know, for hairdressers, a lot of that is a tap on the shoulder that you better lift your game here. You know what I mean? Yeah. You've got to give people a five-star experience because, you know, uh, as you said, slapping a color on, getting an assistant to slap it on, you know, a- anyone can put a color on, but not anyone can design a color, you know? No. Um, and so there needs to be a lot more emphasis <clears throat> put on designing a color and, and the degree of expertise and applying it and giving people that five-star experience so that there is no there is no comparison between getting it done at home by your sister in the kitchen while you're watching, you know, a box set. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. But that's the same for everything across, not just tints, for haircuts, for blow dries, all those services. I think that people are now looking for an experience, as we all seem to be, They want, and they want to feel part of the family. So we as an industry need to make sure that we are on the top of it. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. Um, we need to be sort of wrapping up shortly, but um, I wanted to, to, to touch on uh, the education side of things. Yeah. Um, h- how do you stay relevant? How do you reinvent yourself? How do you, you know, how do you continually grow and learn? So I think that for me, I, it's a great question because I do worry. I like, to, I like to go on classes. I like to go and see things. I use Instagram an awful lot to look at techniques and IGTV. I love that. I'll go on a course every so often if there's something that I see that I really enjoy. Um, being behind a chair, as well as being an educator, keeps me really relevant to what's happening in the market and what women are looking for. Um, and I think that I think education is the most one of the most important things in our industry. And I think that people don't necessarily spend enough on it um, because you can't be doing what you did 20 years ago or 30 years ago and expect to grow your clientele now. You need to adapt. But the education on offer from product companies and from influencers needs to really speak to the needs of the hairdresser behind the chair about how they can either work faster or produce beautiful blondes or do a a foilage technique or do a lovely hand-painted technique. It needs to be aimed at that not sort of geometric, asymmetric cut bobs with short fringes and green bits and pink bits. It needs yeah. to be relevant. Education mm. needs to be relevant. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Okay. Mm. Um, right. So uh, what's next for you? Where, where, where do you go from here? I mean, you know, you've got some very exciting projects on the go there. What's uh, What does the next sort of five to ten years look like for you? Or, or is that an unfair mm. question to ask? Um, I don't know. I think we all have hopes and dreams, and I think that I still have them, which is great. And I feel incredibly fortunate that I still enjoy my, the, this career. So it's not trudgery for me. Um, I'm hoping that the tint brushes are successful and that line by colorist for a colorist works well. I love, I love educating. I want to carry on doing that. I, I see, I have some ideas of things that I want to do. Um, I don't want to put them out there yet. Yeah, of course not. Yeah. Um, but I definitely still have things that I'm working on. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Good. Okay. So uh, a few final words here. Where, whereabouts can people connect with you uh, on social, online, uh, where, or, or even at events? Like where, where is Jack Howard going to be in, over the next uh, uh, few weeks, months, or if not, uh, what are the online social handles that you go sure. by? 
So it's uh, online. Anything you can imagine, if it's online, it's Jack Howard Color, C-O-L-O-R. At, so on Instagram, on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on TikTok. Um, I think that's all I am on now. But generally speaking, like next week, uh, this week I'm going to be in Dublin, the teaching. Then I fly to Hamburg where I'm presenting Essential Looks. I'm doing a balayage class for the Middle East in Hamburg. And I'm doing a couple of other things. Then I'm back in London, in East London, shooting the second part of a global campaign, which is really, really exciting. I'm really pleased about that. Then I'm running my own education event in London. Then I'm doing an event for Alan Howard. Then I'm off to Dubai for a three-day event for Schwarzkopf Professional for Blonde Me. Then I come back and I'm in Manchester and I think I'm in Switzerland. So I'm busy. Okay. So I was going to say yeah. things, things sound pretty quiet then for you. So uh, yeah. 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 But okay. I, you know, I've got better at it because I was trying to please everybody and I was trying to do full-time in the salon be on the road as an ambassador and give 100% as an ambassador. And I just found myself feeling sick and just not enjoying it. And so I've sort of, you know, if I've got five days teaching, I'm not going to go and do a Saturday in the salon. I'm going to take that day off. And it's worked much better for me to actually respect myself and to look after myself in a better way. Yeah, yeah, it's important to find that balance. Mm. So uh, on that note, if you are listening to this podcast with Jack Howard and have enjoyed it, then do me a favour, take a screenshot on your phone and share it to your Instagram stories. Uh, so, Jack, uh, to wrap up, I would like to thank you ever so much for giving me uh, an hour and a bit of your time uh, to be on the Grow My Salon Business podcast. It's been fantastic having this opportunity to to talk to you, to ask you the questions that I've wanted to ask you. Um, you're an absolute wealth of information, and I think you bring uh, a lot of, you know, common sense uh, to the world of hair colour. And, um, you know, there were so many things that I wanted to talk about that I didn't get the chance to. So maybe there's uh, another day in it for us to revisit some of the stuff. So in the meantime, uh, Jack Howard, thank you very much for being on the Grow My Salon Business podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I hope that the audience finds something in there that they can take home and use. I'm sure they did. Thank Great. you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.